The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Having begun in 1901, the Nobel Prize for Literature was still fairly new when it was awarded in 1913 to Bengali writer Rabindranath Tagore. There's something curious in the description of why he won it. First, there is praise for his, quote, profoundly sensitive, fresh and beautiful verse, end quote. But the rest of the description is a reminder of how provincial the prize committee can be, how Western it was. The full description is, because of his profoundly sensitive, fresh and beautiful verse, by which, with consummate skill, he has made his poetic thought expressed in his own English words, a part of the literature of the West, end quote. You can hear it in the description. Tagore stands out for his profundity, his sensitivity, his freshness, his beauty, but also that he broke through into the English-speaking world. That raises a few different questions to consider. Who was he? What did he write about? How did he break through? What did this Indian writer mean for his fellow citizens of Bengal and India? And what did he mean for readers in the West? Indians have won the Nobel Prize in physics and medicine and economics and chemistry. They've won it for peace, but they have not won it again in literature. Not since Tagore. They should have, but they haven't. If we're looking for Indian writers who are worthy of the prize, we could cite many people. If we're looking for an Indian writer who actually won it, who broke through enough to win it, Tagore stands alone. Who was he? How did this happen? And what does it mean? Rabindranath Tagore, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. Rabindranath Tagore has many different aspects. His impact on literature, a good subject for today. We'll hear his writings, too. That's the most important part. We'll hear some of his poetry and a short story. And we'll hear about his effect on his contemporary Western audience. Compliments of W.B. Yates, one of his champions. We'll also hear about what Tagore did with his celebrity and reputation, how he lived the rest of his life, after achieving that kind of worldwide success. But let's start with just a sense of how monumental he was as a writer, an artist, and a figure. Nehru, India's first prime minister, said, quote, Tagore and Gandhi have undoubtedly been the two outstanding and dominating figures in the first half of the 20th century. Tagore's influence over the mind of India, and especially of successive rising generations, has been tremendous. Not Bengali only, the language in which he himself wrote, but all the modern languages of India have been molded partly by his writings. More than any other Indian, he has helped to bring into harmony the ideals of the East and the West, and broadened the bases of Indian nationalism. End quote. Tagore was praised for his poetry, and we'll hear why, but he wrote more than that. Novels, short stories, essays, criticism, plays, along with, of course, poetry. He was also a musician, a painter, an actor, a producer of plays, a social reformer, a composer, 
One critic said, quote, It would be trite to call Rabindranath Tagore versatile, to call him prolific, very nearly funny. The point is not that his writings run into a hundred thousand pages of print, covering every form and aspect of literature, though this matters. He is a source, a waterfall, flowing out in a hundred streams, a hundred rhythms, incessantly. End quote. Tagore got his start writing poetry at the age of eight. He was born in Calcutta in 1861, the youngest in the family with 12 older siblings. He was raised mostly by servants, as his mother died when he was quite young, and his father was busy traveling. Already the Tagores were steeped in culture, essential to what was happening then, what we now call the Bengali Renaissance. They were wealthy. Tagore's father, who was a philosopher, a scholar, a mystic, helped to publish literary magazines and held plays at the Tagore's mansion. He invited musicians to stay in their home so they could teach Indian classical music to the kids. Rabindranath Tagore loved learning and hated school. He learned from his older brothers, his father, and others. He was sent to four schools when he was a child in Calcutta, and he hated them all. He went to college and quit after one day. He once wrote a story about a parrot who was kept in a cage and force-fed textbook pages until the parrot dies. Not too hard to see what he's driving at with that one. He said, at school, they try to explain things to you, but that shouldn't be their focus. They should try to spark your curiosity. He also said that nature was his favorite school. When he was 11, he and his father went on a tour of India, visiting some of the family's estates, landing in a hill station in the Himalayas where Tagore studied history and astronomy and classical poetry and modern science. They also visited Amritsar with its golden temple, which had a profound impact on the boy. The sacred chanting resounded in him, he said. He was writing poems, already publishable, even at this young age. By 16, he was publishing short stories and long verse in a classical style, claiming that the verses were newly discovered works from the 17th century. He was good enough in the style to fool the experts. His father wanted him to be a lawyer, so he went to England for some schooling. He lasted long enough to go to University College London for a while to study law, but once again he dropped out, preferring instead to read Shakespeare and to study folk music from England and Ireland and Scotland. He returned to India, first to Bengal, then moving to what is now Bangladesh to help manage his family's estates. He was writing a lot. Novels, stories, poems. He got married and had several children. He founded an experimental school. He was wealthy. The family money was more than enough for him to live on, and when his father died, when Tagore was in his 30s, he inherited more. His wife and two of his children died. He was gaining more readers now, mostly in Bengali, but a few translations too. And then in 1910, he wrote a work called Gitanjali. He himself translated it into English in 1912. He took a trip to London, where he met Ezra Pound and W.B. Yeats. They admired the poems, and Yeats wrote an introduction for the edition in English that came out. And then the following year, Tagore won the Nobel Prize in Literature because of these Gitanjali, or song offerings, 
Let's pause our description of Tagore's life here so we can hear a couple of things. First, let's hear Yeats's introduction to the Gitanjali, because I think it will frame for you just what Tagore's verse meant for his fellow countrymen, and also what it was doing that was new for Western culture, how they viewed these verses, how appreciative they were to have this Indian sensibility flowing into the river of poetry that they could read in English. Then we'll hear some of the Gitanjali themselves. I'll read the first 12. There were 103 in the published book. And then we'll hear what Tagore did with his celebrity after it came and how he lived the rest of his life. And finally, we'll hear his wonderful short story, Kabaliwala, because I think it will give you a taste of Tagore's special blend of minute observations and broad sense of humanity. Sound good? We'll start with Yeats after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Gitanjali, Song Offerings by Rabindranath Tagore. Introduction by William Butler Yeats. A few days ago, I said to a distinguished Bengali doctor of medicine, I know no German, yet if a translation of a German poet had moved me, I would go to the British Museum and find books in English that would tell me something of his life and of the history of his thought. But though these prose translations from Rabindranath Tagore have stirred my blood as nothing has for years, I shall not know anything of his life and of the movements of thought that have made them possible, if some Indian traveler will not tell me. It seemed to him natural that I should be moved, for he said, I read Rabindranath every day. To read one line of his is to forget all the troubles of the world." I said, an Englishman living in London in the reign of Richard II, had he been shown translations from Petrarch or from Dante, would have found no books to answer his questions, but would have questioned some Florentine banker or Lombard merchant, as I question you. For all I know, so abundant and simple is this poetry. The new Renaissance has been born in your country, and I shall never know of it except by hearsay. He answered, we have other poets, but none that are his equal. We call this the epoch of Rabindranath. No poet seems to me as famous in Europe as he is among us. He is as great in music as in poetry, and his songs are sung from the west of India into Burma, wherever Bengali is spoken. 
He was already famous at 19 when he wrote his first novel, and plays when he was but little older are still played in Calcutta. I so much admire the completeness of his life. When he was very young, he wrote much of natural objects. He would sit all day in his garden, from his 25th year or so to his 35th, perhaps, when he had a great sorrow. He wrote the most beautiful love poetry in our language. And then he said, with deep emotion, Words can never express what I owed at seventeen to his love poetry. After that, his art grew deeper. It became religious and philosophical. All the inspiration of mankind are in his hymns. He is the first among our saints who has not refused to live, but has spoken out of life itself. And that is why we give him our love. Later in the introduction, Yeats says, I have carried the manuscript of these translations about with me for days, reading it in railway trains or on the top of omnibuses and in restaurants, and I have often had to close it, lest some stranger would see how much it moved me. In the final section, he says, We write long books where no page perhaps has any quality to make writing a pleasure, being confident in some general design, just as we fight and make money and fill our heads with politics, all dull things in the doing, while Mr. Tagore, like the Indian civilization itself, has been content to discover the soul and surrender himself to its spontaneity. Let's move on to the Gitanjali themselves. Here's number one. Thou hast made me endless, such is thy pleasure. This frail vessel thou emptiest again and again, and fillest it ever with fresh life. This little flute of a reed thou hast carried over hills and dales, and hast breathed through it melodies eternally new. At the immortal touch of thy hands, my little heart loses its limits in joy, and gives birth to utterance ineffable. Thy infinite gifts come to me only on these very small hands of mine. Ages pass, and still thou pourest, and still there is room to fill. 2. When thou commandest me to sing, it seems that my heart would break with pride, and I look to thy face, and tears come to my eyes. All that is harsh and dissonant in my life melts into one sweet harmony, and my adoration spreads wings like a glad bird on its flight across the sea. I know thou takest pleasure in my singing. I know that only as a singer I come before thy presence. I touch by the edge of the far-spreading wing of my song thy feet, which I could never aspire to reach. Drunk with the joy of singing, I forget myself and call thee friend, who art my Lord. 3. I know not how thou singest, my master. I ever listen in silent amazement. The light of thy music illumines the world. The life-breath of thy music runs from sky to sky. The holy stream of thy music breaks through all stony obstacles and rushes on. My heart longs to join in thy song, but vainly struggles for a voice. I would speak, but speech breaks not into song, and I cry out, baffled. Ah, thou hast made my heart captive in the endless meshes of thy music, my master. 4. Life of my life, I shall ever try to keep my body pure, knowing that thy living touch is upon all my limbs. 
I shall ever try to keep all untruths out from my thoughts, knowing that thou art that truth which has kindled the light of reason in my mind. I shall ever try to drive all evils away from my heart and keep my love in flower, knowing that thou hast thy seat in the inmost shrine of my heart. And it shall be my endeavor to reveal thee in my actions, knowing it is thy power gives me strength to act. 5. I ask for a moment's indulgence to sit by thy side. The works that I have in hand I will finish afterwards. Away from the sight of thy face, my heart knows no rest nor respite, and my work becomes an endless toil in a shoreless sea of toil. Today the summer has come at my window with its sighs and murmurs, and the bees are plying their minstrelsry at the court of the flowering grove. Now it is time to sit quiet, face to face with thee, and to sing dedication of life in this silent and overflowing leisure. 6. Pluck this little flower and take it. Delay not. I fear lest it droop and drop into the dust. I may not find a place in thy garland, but honor it with a touch of pain from thy hand and pluck it. I fear lest the day end before I am aware, and the time of offering go by. Though its color be not deep, and its smell be faint, use this flower in thy service, and pluck it while there is time. 7. My song has put off her adornments. She has no pride of dress and decoration. Ornaments would mar our union. They would come between thee and me. Their jingling would drown thy whispers. My poet's vanity dies in shame before thy sight. O master poet, I have sat down at thy feet. Only let me make my life simple and straight, like a flute of reed for thee to fill with music. 8. The child who is decked with prince's robes and who has jeweled chains round his neck loses all pleasure in his play. His dress hampers him at every step. In fear that it may be frayed or stained with dust, he keeps himself from the world and is afraid even to move. Mother, it is no gain, thy bondage of finery, if it keep one shut off from the healthful dust of the earth, if it rob one of the right of entrance, to the great fair of common human life. 9. O fool, try to carry thyself upon thy own shoulders. O beggar, to come beg at thy own door. Leave all thy burdens on his hands who can bear all, and never look behind in regret. Thy desire at once puts out the light from the lamp it touches with its breath. It is unholy. Take not thy gifts through its unclean hands except only what is offered by sacred love. 10. Here is thy footstool, and there rest thy feet where live the poorest and lowliest and lost. When I try to bow to thee, my obeisance cannot reach down to the depth where thy feet rest among the poorest and lowliest and lost. Pride can never approach to where thou walkest in the clothes of the humble among the poorest and lowliest, and lost. My heart can never find its way to where thou keepest company with the companionless among the poorest, the lowliest, and the lost. 11. Leave this chanting and singing and telling of beads. Whom dost thou worship in this lonely dark corner of a temple, 
with doors all shut. Open thine eyes and see thy God is not before thee. He is there where the tiller is tilling the hard ground and where the pathmaker is breaking stones. He is with them in sun and in shower, and his garment is covered with dust. Put off thy holy mantle, and even like him, come down on the dusty soil. Deliverance? Where is this deliverance to be found? Our Master himself has joyfully taken upon him the bonds of creation. He is bound with us all forever. Come out of thy meditations, and leave aside thy flowers and incense. What harm is there if thy clothes become tattered and stained? Meet him, and stand by him in toil, and in sweat of thy brow. 12. The time that my journey takes is long, and the way of it long. I came out on the chariot of the first gleam of light, and pursued my voyage through the wildernesses of worlds, leaving my track on many a star and planet. It is the most distant course that comes nearest to thyself, and that training is the most intricate which leads to the utter simplicity of a tune. The traveler has to knock at every alien door to come to his own, and one has to wander through all the outer worlds to reach the innermost shrine at the end. My eyes strayed far and wide, before I shut them and said, Here art thou. The question and the cry, Oh, where? Melt into tears of a thousand streams and deluge the world with the flood of the assurance, I am. Those are the first 12 of the Gitanjali or song offerings. There are 103, and they tell of a journey, a spiritual journey, an ascent that's been compared with Dante in the Paradiso, a seeking of the infinite, a search for the living father of all creation. We don't have time to read them all here, but they're worth your time and they're widely available. Instead, we will be back with the rest of the Tagore story, plus a Tagore story, Kabuliwala, after this. Tagore later cited that four-month trip that he had taken with his father as crucial to his development. His father sang to the children and recited verses as they traveled through the Himalayas and encountered people and places, and Rabindranath began to flower. He went from being the youngest child of a famous man to being a prodigious and much-admired talent himself. In his lifetime, he published more than 50 poetry collections in all different forms and styles. He published a book of more than 2,000 songs that he himself composed, pulling inspiration from devotional music, village festival songs, boat songs, classical ragas, and Western tunes he picked up and adapted. He was inspired by nature, felt the music coursing through him, would describe the spiritual feelings he had, during moments of creative inspiration. He wrote 40 plays and produced them, composed music for them, acted in them. These two were a fusion of modern Western theater and classical Indian drama. Tagore did not limit himself to any single tradition coming from any single place. He borrowed from everywhere, absorbed it all, and let it all come out in the artistry of his expression. He also published 14 novels. I mean, this guy... This guy is just astounding what he produced. As a novelist, he was viewed by the West as belonging to an older style, more of a 19th century realist style, not as formally innovative 
as contemporaries like Wolf and Joyce, who were breaking down boundaries. In his short stories, though, he was right there with the best of his age, bringing a Chekhovian style to India. Politically, he was against the caste system. In this, he was aligned with Gandhi, strongly against the concept of the untouchables. He himself had been deeply moved by his trips through rural Bengal and the people he met there. He wrote a drama about a Buddhist monk who asked for some water from an untouchable girl. He drinks water from her hands, and she feels spiritually reborn. Writings like this and lectures helped to accomplish a movement away from untouchability, and he was able to get temples to drop their bands and accept everyone. Tagore was awarded a knighthood in 1915 from King George V, but he renounced it after a massacre, writing a letter to the British leader of India that the British treatment of Indians was without parallel in the history of civilized governments, and, quote, the time has come when badges of honor make our shame glaring in their incongruous context of humiliation, and I, for my part, wish to stand, shorn of all special distinctions, by the side of my countrymen. He studied science and scientific techniques well into his 70s, fascinated by the process. This was the boy who was curious about the world and who wanted to be more curious. A lifetime of reading, a lifetime of writing, a lifetime of curiosity. He traveled to 30 countries on five continents. He met everyone from H.G. Wells to Einstein to Mussolini. He died at the age of 80, a legend of literature in India and the world. He is still mourned. A week or so before he died, after enduring a protracted and painful illness, he wrote his final words, quote, I'm lost in the middle of my birthday. I want my friends, their touch with the earth's last love. I will take life's final offering. I will take the human's last blessing. Today my sack is empty. I have given completely whatever I had to give. In return, if I receive anything, some love, some forgiveness, then I will take it with me when I step on the boat that crosses to the festival of the wordless end. End quote. His life was eventful, even, we might say, raucous, but it's a quiet story that I'd like to read for you. This takes place in Calcutta, and it's about a Kabuliwala. That's a word for a man from Kabul, Afghanistan, who travels with the seasons to Calcutta to earn his living selling dry fruits. The Kabuliwala by Rabindranath Tagore My five-years-old daughter, Minnie, cannot live without chattering. I really believe that in all her life she has not wasted a minute in silence. Her mother is often vexed at this and would stop her prattle, but I would not. To see Minnie quiet is unnatural, and I cannot bear it long, and so my own talk with her is always lively. One morning, for instance, when I was in the midst of the seventeenth chapter of my new novel, my little Minnie stole into the room and, putting her hand into mine, said, Father, Ramdayal, the doorkeeper, calls a crow a crow. He doesn't know anything, does he? Before I could explain to her the differences of language in this world, she was embarked on the full tide of another subject. What do you think, Father? Bola says there is an elephant in the clouds, blowing water out of his trunk, and that is why it rains. 
and then darting off anew, while I sat still, making ready some reply to this last saying, Father, what relation is mother to you? With a grave face, I contrived to say, Go and play with Bola, Minnie. I am busy. The window of my room overlooks the road. The child had seated herself at my feet near my table and was playing softly, drumming on her knees. I was hard at work on my seventeenth chapter, where Pratap Singh, the hero, had just caught Kanchatlata, the heroine, in his arms, and was about to escape with her by the third-story window of the castle, when all of a sudden Minnie left her play and ran to the window, crying, A Kabuliwala! A Kabuliwala! Sure enough, in the street below was a Kabuliwala, passing slowly along. He wore the loose, soiled clothing of his people, with a tall turban, there was a bag on his back, and he carried boxes of grapes in his hand. I cannot tell what were my daughter's feelings at the sight of this man, but she began to call him loudly. Ah, I thought he will come in, and my seventeenth chapter will never be finished. At which exact moment the Kabuliwala turned and looked up at the child. When she saw this, overcome by terror, she fled to her mother's protection and disappeared. She had a blind belief that inside the bag, which the big man carried, there were perhaps two or three other children like herself. The peddler, meanwhile, entered my doorway and greeted me with a smiling face. So precarious was the position of my hero and my heroine that my first impulse was to stop and buy something, since the man had been called. I made some small purchases, and a conversation began about Abdurrahman, the Russians, the English, and the frontier policy. As he was about to leave, he asked, And where is the little girl, sir? And I, thinking that Minnie must get rid of her false fear, had her brought out. She stood by my chair and looked at the Kabuliwala and his bag. He offered her nuts and raisins, but she would not be tempted, and only clung the closer to me, with all her doubts increased. This was their first meeting. One morning, however, not many days later, as I was leaving the house, I was startled to find Minnie, seated on a bench near the door, laughing and talking with the great Kabuliwala at her feet. In all her life, it appeared, my small daughter had never found so patient a listener, save her father. And already the corner of her little sari was stuffed with almonds and raisins, the gift of her visitor. "'Why did you give her those?' I said." and taking out an eight-anna bit, I handed it to him. The man accepted the money without demur, and slipped it into his pocket. Alas, on my return an hour later, I found the unfortunate coin had made twice its own worth of trouble, for the Kabuliwala had given it to Minnie, and her mother, catching sight of the bright round object, had pounced on the child with, Where did you get that eight-anna bit? The Kabuliwala gave it me, said Minnie cheerfully. The Kabuliwala gave it you, cried her mother, much shocked. Oh, Minnie, how could you take it from him? I, entering at the moment, saved her from impending disaster and proceeded to make my own inquiries. It was not the first or second time I found that the two had met. The Kabuliwala had overcome the child's first terror by a judicious bribery of nuts and almonds, and the two were now great friends. They had many quaint jokes which afforded them much amusement. Seated in front of him, looking down on his gigantic frame in all her tiny dignity, 
Minnie would ripple her face with laughter and begin, Oh, Kabuliwala, Kabuliwala, what have you got in your bag? And he would reply in the nasal accents of the mountaineer, An elephant. Not much cause for merriment, perhaps, but how they both enjoyed the fun. And for me, this child's talk with a grown-up man had always in it something strangely fascinating. Then the Kabuliwala, not to be behindhand, would take his turn. Well, little one, and when are you going to the father-in-law's house? Now, most small Bengali maidens have heard long ago about the father-in-law's house, but we, being a little newfangled, had kept these things from our child, and Minnie at this question must have been a trifle bewildered. But she would not show it, and with ready tact replied, Are you going there? Among men of the Kabuliwala's class, however, it is well known that the words father-in-law's house have a double meaning. It is a euphemism for jail, the place where we are well cared for at no expense to ourselves. In this sense would the sturdy peddler take my daughter's question. Ah, he would say, shaking his fist at an invisible policeman, I will thrash my father-in-law. Hearing this, and picturing the poor discomfited relative, Minnie would go off into peals of laughter in which her formidable friend would join. These were autumn mornings, the very time of year when kings of old went forth to conquest, and I, never stirring from my little corner in Calcutta, would let my mind wander over the whole world. At the very name of another country, my heart would go out to it, and at the sight of a foreigner in the streets, I would fall to weaving a network of dreams." the mountains, the glens, and the forests of his distant home, with his cottage in its setting, and the free and independent life of faraway wilds. Perhaps the scenes of travel conjured themselves up before me, and pass and repass in my imagination all the more vividly, because I lead such a vegetable existence that a call to travel would fall upon me like a thunderbolt." In the presence of this Kabuliwala, I was immediately transported to the foot of arid mountain peaks, with narrow little defiles twisting in and out amongst their towering heights. I could see the string of camels bearing the merchandise, and the company of turbaned merchants carrying some their queer old firearms and some their spears, journeying downward towards the plains. I could see but at some such point Minnie's mother would intervene, imploring me to beware of that man. Minnie's mother is, unfortunately, a very timid lady. Whenever she hears a noise in the street or sees people coming towards the house, she always jumps to the conclusion that they are either thieves or drunkards or snakes or tigers or malaria or cockroaches or caterpillars. Even after all these years of experience, she is not able to overcome her terror. So she was full of doubts about the Kabuliwala, and used to beg me to keep a watchful eye on him. I tried to laugh her fear gently away, but then she would turn round on me seriously and ask me solemn questions. Were children never kidnapped? Was it then not true that there was slavery in Kabul? Was it so very absurd that this big man should be able to carry off a tiny child? I urged that, though not impossible, It was highly improbable. But this was not enough, and her dread persisted. As it was indefinite, however, it did not seem right to forbid the man the house, and the intimacy went on unchecked. Once a year in the middle of January, Ramun, the Kabuliwala, was in the habit of returning to his country, 
and as the time approached, he would be very busy going from house to house collecting his debts. This year, however, he could always find time to come and see Minnie. It would have seemed to an outsider that there was some conspiracy between the two, for when he could not come in the morning, he would appear in the evening. Even to me, it was a little startling now and then, in the corner of a dark room, suddenly to surprise this tall, loose-garmented, much-be-bagged man. But when Minnie would run in smiling with her, Oh, Kabuliwala, Kabuliwala! And the two friends, so far apart in age, would subside into their old laughter and their old jokes, I felt reassured. One morning, a few days before he had made up his mind to go, I was correcting my proof sheets in my study. It was chilly weather. Through the window, the rays of the sun touched my feet, and the slight warmth was very welcome. It was almost eight o'clock, and the early pedestrians were returning home with their heads covered. All at once I heard an uproar in the street, and, looking out, saw Ramon being led away bound between two policemen, and behind them a crowd of curious boys. There were blood stains on the clothes of the Kubuliwala, and one of the policemen carried a knife. Hurrying out, I stopped them and inquired what it all meant. Partly from one, partly from another, I gathered that a certain neighbor had owed the peddler something for a Rampuri shawl, but had falsely denied having bought it, and that in the course of the quarrel, Ramun had struck him. Now, in the heat of his excitement, the prisoner began calling his enemy all sorts of names, when suddenly in a veranda of my house appeared my little Minnie, with her usual exclamation, Oh, Kabuliwala, Kabuliwala! Ramun's face lighted up as he turned to her. He had no bag under his arm today, so she could not discuss the elephant with him. She at once, therefore, proceeded to the next question. Are you going to the father-in-law's house? Ramon laughed and said, Just where I am going, little one. Then, seeing that the reply did not amuse the child, he held up his fettered hands. Ah, he said, I would have thrashed that old father-in-law, but my hands are bound. On a charge of murderous assault, Ramon was sentenced to some years' imprisonment. Time passed away, and he was not remembered. The accustomed work in the accustomed place was ours, and the thought of the once free mountaineer spending his years in prison seldom or never occurred to us. Even my light-hearted Minnie, I am ashamed to say, forgot her old friend. New companions filled her life. As she grew older, she spent more of her time with girls. So much time indeed did she spend with them that she came no more, as she used to do, to her father's room. I was scarcely on speaking terms with her. Years had passed away. It was once more autumn, and we had made arrangements for our Minnie's marriage. It was to take place during the puja holidays. With Durga returning to Kailas, the light of our home also was to depart to her husband's house and leave her father's in the shadow. The morning was bright. After the rains, there was a sense of ablution in the air, and the sun rays looked like pure gold. So bright were they that they gave a beautiful radiance even to the sordid brick walls of our Calcutta lanes. Since early dawn that day, the wedding pipes had been sounding, and at each beat my own heart throbbed. The wail of the tune seemed to intensify my pain at the approaching separation. My Minnie was to be married that night.
From early morning, noise and bustle had pervaded the house. In the courtyard, the canopy had to be slung on its bamboo poles. The chandeliers, with their tinkling sound, must be hung in each room and veranda. There was no end of hurry and excitement. I was sitting in my study, looking through the accounts, when someone entered, saluting respectfully, and stood before me. It was Ramun, the Kabuliwala. At first, I did not recognize him. He had no bag, nor the long hair, nor the same vigor that he used to have. But he smiled, and I knew him again. When did you come, Ramun? I asked him. Last evening, he said, I was released from jail. The words struck harsh upon my ears. I had never before talked with one who had wounded his fellow and my heart shrank within itself when I realized this, for I felt that the day would have been better omened had he not turned up. There are ceremonies going on, I said, and I am busy. Could you perhaps come another day? At once he turned to go, but as soon as he reached the door he hesitated and said, May I not see the little one, sir, for a moment? It was his belief that Minnie was still the same. He had pictured her running to him as she used to, calling, Oh, Kabuliwala, Kabuliwala! He had imagined, too, that they would laugh and talk together, just as of old. In fact, in memory of former days, he had brought, carefully wrapped up in paper, a few almonds and raisins and grapes, obtained somehow from a countryman, for his own little fund was dispersed. I said again, There is a ceremony in the house, and you will not be able to see anyone today. The man's face fell. He looked wistfully at me for a moment, then said, Good morning, and went out. I felt a little sorry and would have called him back, but I found he was returning of his own accord. He came close up to me holding out his offerings with the words, I brought these few things, sir, for the little one. Will you give them to her? I took them and was going to pay him, but he caught my hand and said, you are very kind, sir. Keep me in your recollection. Do not offer me money. You have a little girl. I, too, have one like her in my own home. I think of her and bring fruits to your child, not to make a profit for myself. Saying this, he put his hand inside his big, loose robe and brought out a small and dirty piece of paper. With great care, he unfolded this and smoothed it out with both hands on my table. It bore the impression of a little hand. Not a photograph, not a drawing. The impression of an ink-smeared hand laid flat on the paper. This touch of his own little daughter had been always on his heart, as he had come year after year to Calcutta to sell his wares in the streets. Tears came to my eyes. I forgot that he was a poor Kabuli fruit seller while I was... But no, what was I more than he? He also was a father. That impression of the hand of his little Parbati in her distant mountain home reminded me of my own little Minnie. I sent for Minnie immediately from the inner apartment. Many difficulties were raised, but I would not listen. Clad in the red silk of her wedding day, with the sandal paste on her forehead, and adorned as a young bride, Minnie came and stood bashfully before me. The Kabuliwala looked a little staggered at the apparition. He could not revive their old friendship. At last he smiled and said, 
Little one, are you going to your father-in-law's house? But Minnie now understood the meaning of the word father-in-law, and she could not reply to him as of old. She flushed at the question and stood before him with her bride-like face turned down. I remembered the day when the Kabuliwala and my Minnie had first met, and I felt sad. When she had gone, Ramon heaved a deep sigh and sat down on the floor. The idea had suddenly come to him that his daughter, too, must have grown in this long time, and that he would have to make friends with her anew. Assuredly, he would not find her as he used to know her. And besides, what might not have happened to her in these eight years? The marriage pipes sounded, and the mild autumn sun streamed round us. But Ramon sat in the little Calcutta lane and saw before him the barren mountains of Afghanistan. I took out a banknote and gave it to him, saying, Go back to your own daughter, Ramon, in your own country, and may the happiness of your meeting bring good fortune to my child. Having made this present, I had to curtail some of the festivities. I could not have the electric lights I had intended, nor the military band, and the ladies of the house were despondent at it. But to me, the wedding feast was all the brighter, for the thought that in a distant land, a long-lost father met again with his only child. Okay, there we go. Rabindranath Tagore. One more little anecdote to cap things off. What will you do on your 70th birthday, dear listener? Maybe have a cake with a few beloved friends and family? Well, that's a wonderful day for you or for me. But if you're someone like Tagore... You'd be delivering an address at a university that you yourself founded. Imagine what that would be like, what kind of accomplishment you would feel knowing that you've had that kind of impact on the world. Founded a university, changed poetry, changed music, changed hearts, and changed minds. Inspired a nation and beyond. And yet, this is what Tagore said on that day, quote, I have, it is true, engaged myself in a series of activities, but the innermost me is not to be found in any of these. At the end of the journey, I am able to see a little more clearly the orb of my life. Looking back, the only thing of which I feel certain is that I am a poet. End quote. He was certain. He was a poet. For my own part, I can imagine saying on my 70th birthday, I've done a lot of things and been a lot of people, blogger, writer of humble stories, podcaster. But when I look back, the only thing of which I feel certain is that Rabindranath Tagore was a poet. Words to live by. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Thank you.